Greetings and salutations to episode 65 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David, and with me are the NCP crew, Richo. I say the nay. Luke. I say the yeah. And Crystal. Hail. What's up with the ye olde speaking? <laughs> <laughs> ye olde speaking. Woman, have, have thou doth not seen the, uh, the latest Marvel adaptation? The, can thou not conceivest the type of film that we are talking here <laughs> of from here on in? Can, can thou not conceivest? <laughs> <laughs> I'm more shocked by the woman at this day. I didn't even get a cup thrown at you. <laughs> I'd be speaking in Viking. Actually, no, I'm not speaking in Viking. Old, old English Viking. woman and some other... There's some worse things to be called. <laughs> <laughs> That's he didn't very call true. you wench. Uh, he could have called you wench. Prostitute. <laughs> Despite us. Lady of ill repute. <laughs> Scarlet woman. Uh, despite uh, our, our descending into Viking madness, uh, New Culture Podcast is an Australian podcast, for those of you who are new to the show. We might have Viking uh, ancestry. That's a good point. That is true. Australia, we're, we're a hodgepodge of many nations. In fact, Luke, I wouldn't be shocked if you had some Viking in you. I wouldn't be shocked either. <laughs> I have some Germanic in me, so that could lead, lead back to Viking. He has some manic in him, yeah. I haven't done it for a while, but the reason I mentioned they were an Australian podcast is I, um, I found out yesterday, I was looking through the, the stats for the website and the show, and 60% of our audience is Great Britain and America. Oh, right. Cool. Which I thought was pretty cool. We cross waters. We're cr- we're we're, we're an See, we are, we, we are Vikings. We travel across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> That's it. We're an international podcast. We're, we're an international things. podcast conglomerate. And I also saw that we have a, a listener in Singapore. So hello to you, wherever right. <laughs> you are, which is pretty cool. So yeah, nice. I, I did. I did think that was pretty cool. Uh, but welcome to everybody who's listening. For this episode, we'll be reviewing Thor: The Dark World. And as mentioned last episode, we have an interview with Mr. Jim Towns, the writer director of House of Bad. Before we get into that, I have some feedback, which is pretty cool. Um, I don't know if it was last episode or the week, episode before that. We gave away uh, a gift pack from Madman Entertainment. Um, thanks for, thanks again to Madman Entertainment Legends. Uh, the winner of that gift pack was uh, Jason Ten, and he was very excited. He, he emailed me to tell me that he got it. Uh, I collected your package from the post office yesterday. I was instantly transported back to primary school. Man, what a flashback. My wife can't wait to watch them either. And thanks again for the t-shirt. Loving the podcast and listen every week. Thanks again for everything. Keep up the passion, Jason. Thank so, you, Jason. Thank you. That was awesome. Very nice. You are awesome. Yep, Jason you rock. is awesome. Um, he gave me permission to read that out, so that was pretty cool. Fantastic. And we've also gotten some uh, some other feedback. I won't, won't have specifics, but basically just saying that um, they're liking the new weekly format, which is pretty cool. Um, and Bo got some feedback because in Bo's first episode with us, at the end of it, he said, write in and tell me, tell David whether you, whether you love me or you hate me and you want me to stay on the show. And someone, <laughs> and someone actually wrote in and said, and P.S., we all love Bo. Oh, <laughs> so, nice. That was pretty cool. Where is the love? <laughs> it's there for Bo. It's there. The love is there. So uh, he was happy to hear that. So it was cool. So I'm glad uh, people were enjoying it because it's a lot of work. <laughs> so <laughs> if people weren't enjoying it, I, I, I wouldn't be that, that upset to stop doing it. <laughs> but it is cool. And now for the news. Um, so I've got uh, two uh, items that have happened in the world of pop culture recently. First up, Marvel has announced a new female superhero uh, who's going to take the name of Ms. Marvel, now that Ms. Marvel has become Captain Marvel. 
Um, and what's important about that is, is that she is uh, not only female, but she's also a Muslim, uh, an actual practicing Muslim of a Muslim family living in New York. It's pretty exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to have uh, another a teenage, you know, a teenage female as character, but also it's also important that she is a, that she is a Muslim. It's good to have diversity um, and range. Unlike, unlike the Muslim Green Lantern from DC, uh, where they basically haven't really touched on any of these sort of heritage, I hope they actually do, Marvel does something different and mm. does actually touch on that a bit. Mm. Um, that, I mean, what does it mean for a Muslim to be a superhero? I mean, there are certain things that Muslim girls are not really meant to do. Mm. and, and Certain so, ways they're meant to dress. Yeah, so if they can sort of get around that and sort of address it as well, but the not ignore it, that'd be, be awesome. Interesting. The costume, well, at least they've already, the costume is basically just her just in just jeans and a t-shirt, which is pretty cool. It's actually not the first uh, female Muslim character that has actually been part of a regular ongoing series from Marvel, though. They did have uh, Faiza Hussein from um, Captain Britain and MI13 mm. for right. a while yes. there, who was actually placed in a rather interesting situation of uh, gaining Excalibur. And therefore, wielding a magical sword completely separate from her actual, uh, from her own. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Things. I'll be checking that. Um, I, I didn't know about her. I did know about Dust, who's an X Men. Dust in the X Men, yeah. Um, and yeah. She, like, I mean, she's when she wears like the full attire and all yeah. that sort of so. So, so does Phaser and Phaser. Oh, not not quite the full attire. She certainly wears the head. She the, wears, doesn't wear doesn't wear the full um the full burqa, but she wears the um, headpiece. Yeah, yeah, the the, the, the head covering. The, the high jab is that what it's called? Yeah, the hi, the the hair covering that yeah. they yeah. veil. Yeah. The book is going to be written by a female writer as well. So, who is actually Islamic? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, I think this is actually this is a big move on on Marvel's part as well because you know they're actually giving somebody with that upbringing and with that background. They're giving that the that, that writer who is also actually a, a good writer. They're giving her that character to write, and I think that's actually a big step as well. Yep, agreed. Uh, the second item of news is that Marvel and Netflix have announced a partnership where they're going to create four new TV shows uh, in the vein of sort of Smallville, Arrow sort of stuff, uh, based on four of the Hell's Kitchen characters, uh, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, and Luke Cage. And then if those, uh, what, what they're going to do is they're going to have 13 episodes each in their own series. And if those are a success, they're going to then combine into a, a mini, mini series called The Defenders, which is awesome. <laughs> I don't know if you're calling a show Defender, show the Defenders, then um, I'd be expecting a few other characters to show up, but not Daredevil, Iron Man. Well, obviously, it's actually, obviously like they're that. not doing the classic Defenders, right? But, but the fact it's, that, the, but what's awesome? Not, I'm not awesome about this, about the fact they've changed the roster of Defenders. It's awesome that this is happy, this is happening, mm. and this is this is I, a major step step forward for a Marvel I'll, universe. Look, I'll be honest with you. First of all, uh, Agents of Shield, not a very good show. Or at least I've seen I've seen the first the first few episodes and it's it's not a great show outside of Clark Gregg who is awesome. So I'm kind of hoping that these shows will be of a higher quality than that. Um, certainly from a character and writing perspective, at least. But really, I mean, I don't know. Like it's for me, this is not. I'm not excited by this. Mm. It's more of a wait and see and kind of hope that they'll be good. Um, really? Yeah. I'm excited, man. Well, I'm glad I think, it, I think it's an awesome yeah. idea, and if and if if the miniseries, if the De- if the Defenders miniseries is successful, they'll then put those characters into the cinematic universe. Yeah, <laughs> like I said, I'm not. And then there'll excited. be more comic movies that I'll have to go and see. <laughs> <laughs> 
Are they talking webisodes or actual... No, actual shows. Mm. Yeah. So Netflix, this, Netflix is not new to creating no. original content. Yeah. And uh, Marvel's going to be heavily involved as well. It's an interesting concept, and I'm, I'm very excited to see Jessica, Jessica Jones on screen. So Jessica Jones doing the alias storyline, I think, mm. is going to be very, very cool. Yeah, you see, the the Marvel Street level characters, I, I, I do like Data, all don't get me wrong, but, and I don't mind Iron Fist and the little I've read, but Jessica Jones and um, especially Power Man, not big fans of, so... However, if they can get Daredevil right, that would make me excited. And uh, I, I just want to say that Dave's looking a bit... Uh, a bit downhearted here by no, the no, fact no. that we're not as excited as he is. No, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> I, I appreciate alternate views. I'm, I'm excited enough for everybody here. I mean, I'm fair Trish, enough. Crystal's very not excited. <laughs> say, you're excited enough for three people. Then, yeah, that's it. I'm Crystal's, excited enough for everybody. David's okay. been Kev excited. I, you know, I'm very excited. Yeah, so watch we'll see how it goes. I mean, I, I do hope that it's less melodramatic that, than Arrow is. I mean, Arrow is a cool show. But that mm. whole the love triangle yeah. melodrama CW yeah. crap that they do, I hope there's. A lot less of that. Fortunately, there's a point in the first season of Arrow, it's probably about, what, seven or eight episodes in, where they actually realise that they don't have to do as much of that anymore and they start actually doing cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, really, when they start putting, the, first of all, more emphasis on the island and then more emphasis on the actual superheroics and vigilante part of it and less on the love triangle, that's pretty much when the show really takes off. Yeah, I, I do agree. <laughs> I'm enjoying Arrow, actually. It's cool. That's not it's fun. It is a bit of fun. Entertaining. Okay, so that was the news. Coming up next, Popcorn Junkie, Thor, The Dark World. Well, this is a bit of a bit of a throwback to our original sort of Popcorn Junkies, as we all review the, the film together as a group where uh, the crew went and saw Thor, The Dark World uh, last week, and it was... It was fun, and uh, they'll let the rest of the crew speak for themselves. <laughs> it, <laughs> is, it is, of course, the sequel to uh, thought the original Thor movie from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, once again, you have your recurring, your recurring actors, characters. Uh, Chris Hemsworth once again gets his shirt off to the delight of the David and his new man crush. <laughs> and, uh, and and of course, you get the other characters, um, Darcy and uh, Jane, and you know. Dr. Loki. Selvig, which is awesome. Loki. Oh, I like him. He also course. gets his shirt off. Well, I, I did want to mention Loki separately. Well, Loki was going to be separate to that. And, so, and uh, of course, it couldn't be a Thor movie without Loki and uh, the brilliant Tom Hiddleston, who's, uh, who's basically made that character his own. Yep. And, uh, but as much as I love Loki, I, mean, I just, I, that's done. I'm done now. <laughs> just no more Loki for a while. Apparently, Tom Hiddleston uh, freaked some kids out on Halloween night by dressing as Loki and going to the cinema. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a very Vincent Price thing to do. He was in character on stage at uh, the recent con as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he really has uh, embraced this He's role. Really, he didn't he? do that when he came to Australia. He was in Australia recently, actually, a couple of months back, um, doing some, some promo work and store appearances and stuff. And he didn't show up in character in those. He was just a normal guy. But still hilarious. That's not right. The, the, delight, the delight of the crowd. <laughs> So the film then, <laughs> yes. So back on to the film. Um, so it's uh, yeah. So it's a sequel to the the first Thor movie, and it follows up follows on in the Marvel Cinematic chronology. Um, it's after the events of of New York, and uh, Thor uh, hasn't returned to Earth yet because he's been busy, sort of restabilizing the nine worlds. That's been about two years in Earth time, and uh, James not happy about that at all because he said he'd be back. And uh, he's so he's, he finally manages to subdue all the the 
rebels and stuff like that, and uh, settles down for a bit of peace. And it turns out that he's he's been missing Jane a lot and is uh, talking to Heimdall because Heimdall can see Jane and see what she's doing. And so he sort of they sort of converse quite often, like every night, where Heimdall tells him tells Thor what Jane's do, which I thought was a very sweet scene. Um, there's a lot more Heimdall in this movie. Goddamn. Very sweet or very stalkerish? <laughs> it's a fine line, isn't it? It is a fine line. And actually, it's funny you say that because at the time when I saw it on the screen, I was like, stalker. But now I think about it more. And it's, it's, more isn't it? it's clearly meant to be sweet. So you started off, you started off with the, um, the police version of Every Breath You Take. They went into Sting's version of Every Breath You Take. <laughs> it's not that bad. Leave it alone. Um, anyway, so... It turns out that uh, quite a long time in the past, the Dark Elves um, had uh, this this weapon that they were going to use to destroy the universe because they came from the darkness before the light and they want to return the universe to that point. Sounds very Tolkien-ish. Yeah, so, and Odin's father was uh, was managed to, with his army, managed to stop the, the Dark Elves from doing that and uh, said that he destroyed the weapon, but it turns out that he did not. That then um, is basically the catalyst for the rest of the film. Thorin... Jane meet up again, and uh, they then progress to save the world. It's that's pretty much it. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. That was without a doubt the weirdest review you've ever done. Like rundown of a film you've done. Normally, well, normally like oh, you know, it's directed by this person. It stars this person as oh, this character. Yeah, this person as yeah. this character. This person. And you usually break it down quite a bit. And this one's like, oh, I didn't think this one through too much. <laughs> I didn't. Obviously, didn't. It's been a while since we've done a, a group was. Yeah. <laughs> as, as I actually don't even know who the director was, I, and quite frankly, don't really care. And so, but I don't know. That's all you really need to know. Google the rest. Yeah, it has been a while since we've done one of these. Wait, this is Nerd Culture Podcast, not IMDb. That's it. <laughs> you also forgot Christopher Eccleston didn't play Malekith, the villain. Yeah. I didn't forget. I just didn't think it was necessary to say it. Who cares? You didn't think it was necessary to say Doctor Who was in the film. <laughs> yeah. he was, he's done acting before Doctor Who. He's Doctor Who. He's not Doctor Who. <laughs> he's Jude, the depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know him more than Jude. Ever again. Okay, so he's the- Destro. That's who he is. He's Destro. <laughs> that was terrible. Okay. To get, a, to get um, he's John Lennon. This is a pretty-looking film, um, but what it suffers from is unlike say, the first film, in which Kenneth Branagh came in and actually did made, did a remarkable job of showing the differences between. Um, Asgard and Earth and, you know, showed, you know, big sweeping shots for Asgard and, you know, close, more intimate stuff for the um, the Earth as well and tried to come up with various colour schemes to separate the two. The director here who, to be fair to, to be fair to Dave, I can't even remember the guy's <laughs> name and I'm normally pretty good at that stuff, doesn't really make the, 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 the demarcation isn't all that strong so it's all, it all almost could all be set in one, in one world. Um, well, for the most part, it is like it, there's a lot more. Well, the world's Asgard- emerging. Mm. There's a lot more Asgardian stuff sense. than there is Earth stuff in this one. But and that's part of the problem, I think, which is it's all a, the you take you take away from the sense of wonder about Asgard and Valhalla and all the all the mytho- mythological stuff. And well, I, think, I think that's that's one of the things that that is lost a little yeah, bit in but this film. In the first film, you've you've had that sense of wonder, so now you sort of yeah. know what to expect. So sure. it's hard to get that back. Mm. Having said that, Asgard is a lot more science fiction-y yeah. in this film. There's yeah. a lot more laser blasting and they're, things they're like that. They've made it very is. clear that the but Asgardians are aliens. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, sci- yeah. it's a science fiction show. They said mm. we're not gods. Mm. Yeah. yeah, true. But I just I just find that um, that takes away a little bit of the mystique as well by yeah. making it just more of a science fiction world. Mm. She's um, in the X-Men. Sorry? 
I even I know that. She was in the X Men. <laughs> um, but I think this. They've just been silly. <laughs> this um, it's it's pretty. Look at the you know the action is uh, fast and plentiful. But I think the the big problem with this is that it really lacks a story for Thor. The first one is very centric on Thor's character arc, going from being a, ser- a selfish person mm-hmm. to being a person worthy of becoming king of Asgard. Yeah. Um, and in this one, he's really there just to show up for the fights. Yeah. Um, he doesn't actually drive the story in any way, shape, or form. You know, the you know, it's nice to see some some of the minor characters uh, get you know nice little moments in the sun, nice moments in the sun. So Sif and the um, the Warriors three getting little moments and you know little lines and sides and things like that. And yeah. Heimdall with his that awesome moment against the um. The that was Dark so Earth. over the top. But I went, it's cool because no. it's Heimdall, no. and more importantly, it's Heimdall played by Idris Elba. I think I think that scene was purely a, a, a screw you to everybody who complained about Heimdall being black in the first. Film. And you know what? I didn't care because I went, I like I like Heimdall quite a lot. I like him too. Um, and it's nice to get it's nice for him to have a little. It's nice for him to see us to see him do something cool because in the first one, you know, he gets blasted by Loki, is frozen and out of the action for most of it. So to give him a nice little moment here, I thought was quite nice. But it does all come at the expense of um, our main character. Hmm. Um, Jane Foster gets a little, you know, Jane gets a little, she's sort of the, the plot device that gets the show moving. She's got the, um, the ether inside of her and, you know, everyone's fighting all over themselves to make, to either keep her, heal her, or use her as the, the most powerful weapon in the universe. Um, but then she's just, she, that, at the end she just becomes a device. She tries to come up with a solution to save the universe, but doesn't really progress beyond that. This is really Loki's film. Hmm. He actually drives. And Eric's. He drives. <laughs> Whilst he doesn't quite they, they drive, make it Whilst he doesn't quite drive the action, he dominates the scenes that he's in. Yeah. Um, his personality, his presence, Tom Hiddleston's performance really make sure that he's not. The, what's not the emphasis? He's the one who's the most interesting element in the film, um, and I think that's a mistake because mm. it's not Loki Dark World; it's Thor Dark World. I agree. From a non-comic person's perspective, I actually don't mind that. I'm not that invested in Thor as a character. Mm. But so I, I don't, and, and I just I found the whole I found the film entertaining. I, I you could say, boys, this is one that you can take your girlfriends to, and they won't be bored. And <laughs> 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 in, in danger of being stereotypical. <laughs> I, I found it. I like this better than the first film. No, I think the first one actually it, it's stronger character focus. Meant the yeah, first but this film. one's more entertaining yeah, though. It, it's a Comic film that doesn't I, take itself too seriously. My, my benchmark is Captain America. It's a comic film that took itself way too seriously. <laughs> it bogged down in detail and it was really paid a lot of fan service to the fanboys. Yes. Which meant uh, anybody just coming in afresh really was just bored out of their brain. And not to mention montages. And montage, and montage galore. Whereas this film was just, you know, it flowed quite nicely. It was entertaining. It was funny. I'll say that again. It was funny because that's the the. It's I think it's highest attribute. It was quite funny, <laughs> especially especially Eric. <laughs> He's awesome. Well, I actually do want to give credit to a lot of the acting in this film, starting with Chris Hemsworth. Um, what impressed me about Chris Hemsworth in this movie was that he's actually playing Thor completely differently to the way he played him in the first film. Mm. And so he's, he's, he's followed through on that character development mm. from the first film and brought it into this movie really quite nicely. There's some nice little subtle moments. I think, is it Jamie Alexander? Yeah. Does a really nice job of, of Sif, especially when she's pining after Thor without saying she's pining after Thor. I thought that was nice. Um, as Luke said, the Warriors 3, 
really nicely done. Um, Idris Elba, awesome as always. Um, I think credit uh, to Anthony Hopkins. I can't imagine anybody else doing a better job of playing Odin, of bringing that sort of gravitas and presence that Odin should have. Brian Blessed. Brian Blessed. But Brian Blessed would have played it more over the top. And I'm cool with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have Brian Blessed in any Anthony, well, Anthony Hopkins is able to keep to over the top. He's also any able, kingly role. He's uh, able to bring it back a little bit. Which Brian is. Blessed would have just kept it on one level. As awesome as he would have been, don't get me wrong. Anthony Hopkins does actually can actually shift status and yeah. do some yeah, different exactly. things. Um, also, credit to Rene Russo, who has a couple of very fine moments, certainly a lot more than she had in the first film, and she makes the most of what she's given yes, she to does. work with. Tom Hiddleston, as everybody has said, is just always awesome now as Loki. Um, for me, the real letdown here, though, was actually um, Malekith, mm. and not which is not anything against Christopher Eccleston, because he is an absolutely magnificent actor. I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. But he's just... He's just not really given anything to, to do, anything to work with. He's got a few lines here and there. It's like he, he's just there to, to be the bad guy until they can bring Loki in to have all the good lines. So, that's it. That's exactly and, and I was, right. I was a little disappointed by that. I, I wish, because Malekith is a great character and Christopher Eccleston's a great actor. I just wish they'd given him more to work with so that the threat in the film would feel greater. Yeah, yeah. I just don't think Critical Person was the right choice to play him. In the comics, Malekith is quite over the top, but still evil. Whereas, but, but that, I think that that's could more, still that's, work. Chris was just, was very restrained. No, but I think that's also, sleep. I don't think that's due to him. Well, he I think that's due up. to script and direction. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, that's what I'm, saying. That's, I'm not with Richard. I'm not anything mm. against Chris Wilkinson. Mm. What he did, what the, what he could, with what he had. Mm. I just don't think he was given any. A, yeah, given no. the right character. Well, to give to give a, a good contrast, whilst I didn't like the movie in the second Star Trek film. The only good thing about it is Benedict Cumberbatch and his awesomeness as a villain. Here, Malekith isn't presented that way. He's yeah, he's, he's, he's offside a curse, does most of the work. Exactly right. <laughs> Just to uh, get it out there, the director was Alan Taylor. Mm. Yes. Like I said at the start, I actually, I, and I agree with Crystal, I actually enjoyed this more yeah. than the first film. I, like, I mean, the first film, I think, is a better structured film. Mm. Like you said, I mean, there is, is actual character work and mm. the story. But this was so much more fun. And it's just, and I, I enjoyed myself in this a lot more. Could I, and, I, and I'm not actually, you know, actually picking an argument here, but one of the things that I came away because I got a bit bored of this film, but the, because there's a lot more action in this one, mm. I wondered was the was one of the critiques of the first Thor film not enough action, and so they had to they, did they feel like with this one they had to put more in? Maybe because yeah. there's there's a lot more fight scenes in this one than there are in the first one. There's not a lot of action in the first one. I think it's I think it's not really a. a a more less they wanted more action than the first Thor had. I I think they wanted a, a, a lot more action so they so could compare to Avengers. Mm, okay, it's not so much that it was more action; it was more entertaining action. Mm. You've got you haven't just got the um, the superheroes blowing each other up. You've got Jane in there do there too, mm. making a really good contribution with that little gadget of hers. Mm. Um, mm. So it's not just. And you, you sort of your mind's working as well as watching the action, so you're working out what's happening. Where it's not just explosions and buildings blowing up and that sort of thing. Although there is that as well. Oh, there is that as well, but it's not just <laughs> yeah, that. No, no, yeah. Oh, I, and on that note, I'm so sick to death of that booming noise that happens in these action sequences. Hmm. Is that like the tripod? Started, the the trans, it started in the Transformers, and it's just every film since then has had this. Doom, 
with us. Like. It's like the tripods from War of the Worlds. Mm, get over. I'm just so I'm so tired of it. But uh, you know, in terms of, I mean, the action was the action was fine. The action was what it was. Actually, um, actually, but my favorite my favorite bits were actually were Loki, um, especially the conversation he has with his mother in the prison, um, and the big plan at the end, which I don't want to don't want to ruin, um, and uh, and just the comedy. Like it was it was out of place, but I loved it. It was the when Thor gets on the train and uh, the girl. Accidentally, kind of accidentally, sort of touches his chest and he just smiles at her. This is gold. How do I get that? That was actually, that was actually um, I thought that was a funny moment as well. It sort of does come right in the smack bang yeah, in the middle it, of a it, big stops, fight. it stops the fight dead. <laughs> it's like um, but surely it, he's got other things on his mind but, here. But you know, he's still he's a bit of he's a bit of a rogue. <laughs> he's like you know, I mean, the, the girl he, he has a playful little smile and <laughs> makes more sense than say the start of Skyfall where Bond rips off half the train, enters, does a little. Yeah, tie straight anything, and no one bats an eyelid that half the train's off. <laughs> That's true. Just one brief thing before we finish up, too. There is the uh, little post-credits sequence, yeah, featuring uh, uh, Benicio del Toro as the collector. <laughs> and I've got to say, I was uh, it was pretty cool. Like, I actually quite enjoyed it. It's it's. It in no way bears any resemblance to the rest of the film, except that it does have a couple of the characters in that scene. Yep. But, um, yeah, there was just something quite cool about it. And Benicio Del Toro, just an awesome choice to play the collector. <laughs> he is cool. Just, like, perfect casting. I mean, that, that, that end credits thing... I mean, um, there's actually two end credits things. Yeah, there's, the, that, they, there's that one there, and there's one right at the end. But the one at the right at the end, you can just ignore. Um, but this one, this one's important in terms of that it links Thor with the Guardians of the Galaxy film that's going to come out. Um, and also reveals, basically, Marvel's... Uh, theme for the the rest of the movies that are coming out now yeah. up until you know whatever where they're basically collecting the infinity gems mm. um so it's yeah. it's very important in terms of uh of law and sort of getting into that sort of universe mm. i did have a couple of people who are, are funny at work who have no idea about any of that sort of stuff mm. thought the collector was ridiculous let's face facts the collector is <laughs> kind of ridiculous <laughs> when you think about it and I just, I just had to laugh because I agree totally <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I then sort of explained the Infinity Gem sort of thing to him and now they're just they are on board so we've got yeah. non, non-comic readers non-nerds who basically the Avengers has created a new generation of nerds really and yeah. so and they, they, now they've sort of told them what I think is basically going to happen and they're they're right on it. <laughs> they're really excited. So it's pretty cool. Okay, so final thoughts and ratings. This was an entertaining popcorn film. Uh, I don't think it was the equal of the first film as far as actual story depth goes, or even character depth. But I was certainly entertained while I was watching it, and I give this three looks. I think I've blown out the less fun with it out of the crow. You know, I, I hear what everyone's saying. Yeah, there are little bits of it that I did enjoy, but ultimately it's not as good a film as the first one. Um, and my review on the first one, you know, wasn't all that high to begin with. I give this one and a half looks. Um, I'll give it four looks. Like I said, it was, it was fun. I wasn't bored. Yeah, and whenever I go and see a comic movie and I'm not bored, that's always a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree with everything Richo said. Richo is basically my final thoughts to a T. All right. But... I'm rating films based on how much I enjoyed them, mm. not how technically good they are. Yeah, your and, film uh, school has spoiled your view on these and, things, uh, I think. Oh, <laughs> I would say that's a discussion we'll have for another time, <laughs> I think. I think. Um, yeah, so I'm giving this three and a half looks. All right, so that was uh, Thor The Dark World. Luke, not a fan? <laughs> 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 you know, that's good. World's, world's harshest critics strikes again. <laughs> and uh, coming up next is the interview with Mr. Jim Towns. 
I recently had the opportunity to uh, review uh, House of Bad and um, was offered the chance to talk to the writer-director, Jim Towns, uh, which was very cool. I reviewed House of Bad in the, a pre the previous episode and uh, I then uh, managed to get to speak to Jim. Yeah, and uh, he was awesome. It was, a, it was a great interview. He was awesome to talk to and uh, I, I'd be very happy to talk to him again um, if he has any other future projects come up and stuff. So it was cool. So uh, here's Jim. Hi, this is David, and I am with Mr. Jim Towns. Hello. <laughs> we're talking uh, talking yeah. to Jim in uh, in America, and uh, Jim, I'm, we're ta I'm talking to Jim as as I discussed in the last episode. Was I watched House of Bad, which is Jim's latest project, and uh, he he was good enough and kind enough to uh, agree to an interview with me for for that. It's really excited. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Good day, everybody. This is awesome. <laughs> G'day. <laughs> awesome. Have you have you done many interviews for the publicity trail? Yeah, um, we we kind of started our, our our PR campaign. Uh, a lot of the interviews up to now have been written ones where they send me the questions and stuff. So I just started kind of doing these kind of the live ones and stuff, and this is kind of cool. I always prefer to actually you know listen to somebody talk about their craft or whatever as opposed to reading edited and carefully you know manicured and all that. Yeah, but I, I much prefer to talk to people for sure. And I'm really excited to talk to you. When uh, Clint contacted me uh, yeah. and asked if I wanted to do an interview, and I was like, holy crap, this is the guy behind Prometheus Triumphant. Oh, so do you know the film? I love that film. Oh, oh seriously? Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. That is awesome stuff. I'm a big fan of uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu right. and all that sort of stuff, and it just and it just really evokes that sort of gothic imagery to it. I was like, this is brain stuff. I was a big, big fan. Oh, fantastic. Hey, thanks very much. That makes me feel good. It, it uh, yeah, I mean, that's what we we're going for, obviously, but, you know, you realize that that's actually a pretty niche target demographic, you know? Yeah. It took you like, what, it took you like five years to do it, doesn't it, Lean? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, we yeah. shot that thing over a period of like two years, and yeah. then it took us forever to edit it and get it, you know, finalized and, and yeah. post, and then it took us... I wanted to get it distributed, so it, yeah, it was it was a project. Yeah. And it, is, is it true you actually had to sort of sneak onto sites and sort of film some stuff and then sort of sneak yeah, off? There was, yeah, there was there was some there was some a lot of guerrilla stuff involved in that. I think the, the only place we really had permission to shoot was the uh, abandoned asylum. Oh, was, wow! And we, we shot there for like two videos. It was, it was a it's called Dixmont State Asy Lunatic Asylum. It's in it's in Western Pennsylvania. It was built in 1888 and was closed in 1988, so it had been abandoned for 20 years by the time we, you know, were shooting there. And it was, let me tell you, it just there's creepy, and then there's a 100-year-old abandoned asylum, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other stuff we shot, we shot in like, uh, like some old, older like school, like college buildings around Pittsburgh, and we didn't have permission for that. We just went in and went into a room and basically locked the door behind us and we shot in like abandoned uh, steel mills and abandoned houses that we were sure we were going to just collapse while we were shooting. It was, it was, a, it was an experience, man. <laughs> it sounds like it. The asylum thing. I, I, I'd love you to go back and sort of go to that sort of subject again. It'd be awesome stuff. Yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a project that's coming up called uh, Bloodsucker City and it's kind of a period piece about a, a girl like almost depression era about a, uh, a woman who's falsely accused of killing her son. And she's sent to this maximum security women's prison where all the, all the wardens are vampires. <laughs> you know, they make this pretense that they're, they're just in charge of the, the side of the, of the prison. Yeah. And then they slowly feed off of 
yeah, they send him down to solitary. They find reasons to send him down to solitary confinement, and they feed slowly. You know, so they just got their meal source there. Yeah. And if they kill him, they send him out to Potter's Field and stuff. So it should be a cool. Um, the one one of the actresses attached to that is I don't know if you know Steph Dawson. Ring She's the, an Aussie actress. She was yeah. just in Wrath. Yeah. And she just um, she just ended up landing a part in um, in the next Hunger Games movie. Yeah, I just yeah, that's right. She and I are, she and I are really good buddies. We've known each other out here for a little while, and uh, and hopefully you know when the time comes she'll be available and we can do that. And she won't she won't be you know too big a star by then. <laughs> That'd be awesome. So so we've talked we've talked a bit about Prometheus Triumphant, but uh, you've also done another one for, for another film called Sleep of Reason, uh, which actually won quite a lot of plaudits. It, yeah, it got around a little bit. It was it was the first short uh, I did. I co-directed with uh, Mike McCown, who's a guy I've known for a long time, almost since childhood. Yeah, we did that. Uh, uh, Super Reason in I think it was two thousand and three, and it it won some awards. It won uh, Pittsburgh has a Film Workers Association that their their version of the Oscar is a creature from the Black Lagoon yeah. statue. That's a and cool looking one. What a creature! And and that's uh, the creature on my uh, still on my. Uh, on my piano, and it's a you know it's got a prized possession. I love that thing. <laughs> it is cool. I actually think it looks better than the Oscar. Let's face it. Mm. Although I prefer it personally, yeah. but you know, <laughs> you've you've had a, a, another other projects as well. Which and uh, I think your other projects sort of show just how appreciative uh, uh, you are of strong female characters. Is there is there a reason yeah. for that? Is that is that something from your upbringing? You know, it's I don't I don't know. I was raised by a single mother, uh, and and so I was around. It was just her and me, and mm-hmm. uh, my my brother was much older, and he'd already uh, you know graduated and moved on. Um, so you know, I think I had a, a strong connection with her, and she's she was a great woman, and and you know, gave me a lot of the tools that have led me through you know all sorts of ups and downs in my career. Um, uh, at some point, while I when I started writing, I somehow figured out that for one reason or another, I seemed to be able to write. Good female, good strong uh, female characters and actresses appreciate it, and it's it's really helped me get very good talent uh, attached to my films that that I might otherwise not have, and that so that's been great. So yeah, it, it especially in horror, there's something a lot more captivating about female protagonists hmm. because it's sort of a blend of vulnerability and then and then like an internal strength it, it's it's almost like there's more of a more of a character journey like a, like a better a, lo- a better arc that the characters can go on when when they're female or at least it, uh, it works better for me when i'm writing so yeah it's it's you know you you find things you're good at and you stick with them so there you go it's so, so obviously you'd be a fan of uh laura strode from halloween Mm-hmm. She, Absolutely. I mean, basically, um, she personifies that that sort of idea. She, she does. I mean, she's really you know her Sigourney Weaver and Aliens, mm-hmm. uh, especially Linda Hamilton. Inter- yeah. Um, that's a great example of someone who you know it's 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 almost that Hitchcock thing of this normal person who becomes caught up in in, in events that are much larger than than themselves um, mm. through no fault of their own. They're just you know it's the will of fate and. Uh, Something that was great with House of Bad is that we we had three female characters. I could all make different, and and you know uh, Heather Tyler's character Teague is has this incredible strength. She's almost she's macho. I mean, you know, she almost borders on having some sort of you know a little bit of a gender identification issue, mm. and yet she's obviously so fragile underneath. You know, it's all it's all a it's all a bluff. It's all a front that she's got. Um, Lily is just like an exposed nerve. She's an addict, so she has. You know, everything affects her so much more drastically than anyone else, which is 
my justification for sort of why, as the film begins, she's the first one that kind of, um, being a heroine act, she kind of taps into the, the, the supernatural stuff that's happening in the film first, because it's almost like her, her natural barriers are down because she's going through this withdrawal. Um, and then Sadie Katz's character, Syra, um, is, is that classic middle child that, you know, just wants everything to be okay. Just wants everyone to get along. Just it works so hard to try and you know keep that keep that family together. It's all she wants to do, and everything she does just backfires, and, and the situation just gets progressively worse and worse and worse. So, yeah. So that was fun. That the dynamic of those three characters bouncing off each other in a house, and, and obviously, you know, three siblings stuck in a house together over a period of time. You're going to have all these old grudges and old uh, issues. Are gonna are gonna start small and they're gonna grow into these gigantic you know differences between the characters and stuff and that's good drama to mind. And it's, and I think they all they all sort of play off each other very well as well. I mean you've already, you've already mentioned Heather um, and Sadie and uh, there's also Cheryl Sands. Um, yeah. What what sort of drew you to those particular actresses in, in sort of like the auditioning stage or anything like that? Um, yeah, the the auditions were interesting. Um, I, I sort of started pushing the project forward in the beginning of 2011 and had done a little bit of early casting, which for, for one reason or another, all three actresses basically ended up not doing the final film. So it was sort of a matter of towards you know the middle of this pre-production process, lighting the fires and, and having to you know kick it in. Um, uh, Heather, my, uh, my producer, Scott Derota, had met um, through her husband, uh, Scott and, and him knew each other, and they'd seen her in this one-woman play uh, in here in L.A. and had just been blown away by just how she just owned the stage for like an hour and a half, and you know, just just her. So we brought her in, and she she read Fatigue, and she was fantastic. Um, Sadie as well, we brought in to read for, for the Tig character, and Sadie gave this. You know, Heather's read was basically what you see on film. She's this very controlled and intense creature with this this you know fragile uh, inside sadie's version of teague was this manic you know barely controlled just almost like almost vibrating uh <laughs> uh woman on the edge of on the edge of her, her control um and it was it was amazing to watch it would have been very hard to sustain for 90 minutes i think yeah. um and so we cast heather very quickly after that the actress we were going to have play Syrah backed out and i brought up the idea well what about Sadie? Let's let's pull Sadie, and you know, because we, we all loved her in our audition. Let's pull her in for the the uh, the, the Syra role, and I think that threw everyone, including Sadie, who mm. was a little confused by that sudden change. And I can't even imagine that character being played by anybody else. I mean, Sadie's just you look at at, at Sadie on, on camera, and you, you look in her eyes, and you just want her to be okay. She's she's it was yeah, it was just it's perfect, perfect casting. And then Cheryl had. Uh, Showed audition for another film of mine, and that hadn't that film hadn't ended up happening, and so that was kind of an easy choice. And I'm not sure I even auditioned her. I I just called her and was like, "Hey, can you, will you do this?" And she was on board. And hmm. luckily, the the syncopation between the three actresses was was wonderful. So that you know, just on camera and off camera, they they sort of were palling around and being sisters and stuff. And you can see that when you when you watch it. I think. But, oh yeah, yeah. you can see the connection straight away. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you you made the decision you did with Heather as Teague. Because uh, I think she does a great job. I, I think they all do great jobs, and um, but uh, I, I, I especially like Sadie's Sadie's performance. I thought it was, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's just totally believable in in terms of yeah, you know, she's 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 sweet and and 
not sort of sort of innocent, sort of, and, yeah. and but then by the end of it, she's like, "Well, I got to do what I got to do." You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, she's definitely got the, the biggest journey of, yeah. of all three. I mean, she starts off as as the one you, you totally don't think of as heroic, and and you know, through through you know all the, everything that goes down and stuff, she's the one who's really forced to really take over. Yeah, she's sort of the heart of the film, really. Sadie's also a writer. Did she help out with the script in any way? Yeah, yeah. She's written uh, a couple of films. She's written. She co-wrote a film called Scorn. When you're dealing with an actor who's also a writer, um, it really works. I think uh, it's, it's a kind of a gift. Um, so often, actors will come up to you with an idea for their character, and it's a great idea, whatever it is. But you know, the actor tends to be character specific. So while whatever they have might be a great idea for the character, it kind of doesn't fit into the whole film at all because mm. um, it's you know it's it's all a you know it's, it's all a mix and a stew and, and all the ingredients have to work together. Um, but you know, say you being a writer and, and other actors or writers, they, they tend to see that bigger picture uh, even a little bit better. They can step outside the character. So when they come with, at you with something, it's it's really good. There's a scene at the end of the film that it had nothing to do with her. She just it's just suggested that. When her character goes to this one place, we should have a flashback little shot to remind us that we're back in this place because we haven't seen it since the beginning of the film. And, you know, you watch the film and you're like, well, she's definitely right about that. And it's in the film and it's great. So, you know, I come out of fine art, which is a very solitary uh, medium. And film is, is inherently collaborative. And, and you have to listen to, if, you know, you have to work with good people and then also and then listen to their ideas because that there's a reason you brought them on. Awesome. There's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of nude scenes in the film as well. So obviously you you have a, a comfortable set. They see they're obviously comfortable in doing those scenes, and uh, <laughs> that, that's something to something to applaud. And that's awesome. Yeah, well, well thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was you know that was the deal going in, and all the actresses knew it. Um, it was it was in the script. It was it was part of the the, the whole concept. Um, it, it's an ingredient you do have to have, especially on, on our level when you don't have uh, you know big name actors involved and stuff. Um, it's just one of those things. It, it 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 it's part of it and stuff. Beyond that, I think especially for this film, you know, it's a, it's a suspenseful situation. It's you know it's got its, its horror elements and supernatural things going on. Um, beyond that, there is sort of a strange voyeuristic idea of like, what do three girls in a house do together? over a period of, you know, two weeks, like, what happens here, you know? So there's this whole, you know, especially from a male standpoint, you're kind of like, what, what would this be like? I'm, I'm sure what we're portraying is, is, is very far from what actually, you know, the accurate uh, result would be. Um, I don't think the girls spend most of their time hanging out in their underwear together and uh, watching another shower. I, um, I, I do love that scene. But, I do love that scene where Cheryl's just wearing just a T-shirt or something. And oh, right. T yeah, and T yeah. tells her off. It's like it's like put some pants on. The pants on. Us. She's the old <laughs> sister. Um, yeah, that I had to have. I had to have an uncomfortable, well, for me, conversation with Cheryl. Uh, that was, that came up in the reshoots, and unfortunately, I was watching you know our cut of the film. And I was like, you know, I, I think I think maybe we don't have quite enough to uh, keep the teenage boys entertained <laughs> here while we while we set up the story in the first half hour. So I was like, you know, Cheryl, can we maybe do this little scene and then? She was cool with it. They were all cool with it. You, you know, it, when you're on set and you're doing this kind of stuff, if you don't make it a big deal, if it's just one more shot you got to get, just like anything else, then everyone can just let it happen and, and be cool with it. And and it's just not a big deal. Um, it's it, you know, you always hear people talk about how not sexy it is to, yeah. to do love scenes and and to film nudity. 
and you're always like, yeah, right, whatever. Yeah, you know, but it actually is true because it's a technical process. Yeah. Uh, where you have to figure out what you're showing, but what you're not showing, you have to figure out. You know, obviously, you want everyone to look good while you're doing it. So there's a lot of lighting and, and involved. It, it becomes very complex. One of the things I learned from House of Bad, I, I would definitely say, is is to not take the only love scene in the film, the only you know, the only making love, sex, whatever scene you want to call it. And, and shoot it at the very, very end of principal photography at the end of a 14-hour day. Because it's, it's <laughs> no one's in a good mood. No one, it's, it's just, all everyone wants to do is just go home. They're so tired. And it, it might have been the only kind of grumpy moment we had during, during the shoot, which is otherwise, it was, it was very, it was really agreeable with everybody. Um, and at the last minute, it was one of those things where we set it up, and I just, I just turned, I just thought it was starting to look a little skinamaxy. So yeah. I, I went and I just switched off every light that we had front lighting the characters and just let him be lit from behind and silhouette. And I think it came off a lot classier that way. Hmm. Um, I think it looks good. It sets up the more atmosphere of the film and stuff. So, yeah. As a film, as a, a student of film, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the directoral process. And there's one particular scene that I, that I wanted to discuss with you. Um, <laughs> it's the scene where Teague, it's sort of like the first hint that Teague's gone a bit mad. And uh, she's standing. You just you're standing from behind her, and she's naked, and she's basically talking to the ghost of her dad. Right, um, right. What what was the the thinking behind that? Like, why is is she naked? Because it's meant to portray some sort of vulnerability. Yeah, that there's that. Um, you know, there's a logical thing where she's just taking she's she's just taking the, the bath and everything. Um, I read somewhere that, and I don't, I can't remember the exact numerical percentage of people that are naked when they kill themselves, hmm. but it's, it's, it's a lot. It's like 30% or 32 rates. Uh, for wow. some reason, a lot of people just have this idea of, and I don't know what it is. Is, is it, is it going back to your natural state? Like the way you were born, the way you came into the world, when you're going out of the world? Hmm. Um, I don't know, but, but for some reason that has stuck with me. And there was, there was just this incredible vulnerability, this idea. And, and to me, that's what nudity in a, in a, in a horror film especially really symbolizes. It's not really an, a, a, an erotic thing sometimes mm. as much as it is, is the idea of, of a character who is completely vulnerable at that moment and has no layers of protection on them. Um, in uh, researching, uh, researching you, I found this awesome quote of yours. Uh, horror films don't influence society, they reflect it. Um, could you could you elaborate on that a bit for me? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, a filmmaker is an artist, and you're influenced by you know by your own context, by what else filters into your world, um, and and you know we're we're like recycling machines. We just we, we you know we take all that in and we we shift it around in our in our messed up subconsciousness, and we regurgitate it out. So a lot of what you see is is uh, on screen usually is a filmmaker's response to what's going on in the world. So, so you know, the idea behind that, that quote I gave was what you're seeing on screen is really a response to what happens in real life. And you need to examine how much scarier real life is than any horror film you'll ever see. I mean, in real life, your, your kid goes to school and there's a, there's a guy with a gun in school or you go to the airport and there's a guy with a gun in the airport. You know, people just, people get cancer, you know. And mm-hmm. there's, there's horrific things in life that there is... No, no real defense against, um, and that's just part of being human. I think what's great about horror is it's cathartic, and that's the idea. If it sets up a world where if you can run fast enough and duck at the right time and just be quiet enough and and smart enough to outwit whatever 
type of death is trying to come and get you, you can survive. Mm. Um, and I think vicariously, we enjoy that. We enjoy the idea that we have some kind of actual power to help ourselves survive when, uh, you know, unfortunately, in real life, that's not always the case. Awesome. If you were doing this interview, what would be the one question that you would want asked? Oh, good one. No, I like it. Probably what do you think makes House of Bad stand out from the other 3,500 horror films that have come out this year? That would be the question. And I, I really do think, I think the answer would be there's, there's, a, there's a heart to the film. I think, I think in a weird way, the film is, is somehow uplifting. Mm. I think the characters live and breathe uh, on screen and their relationships are true and honest. Uh, I just think there's an honesty to it that transcends just, just being a horror film. Um, I think people who, and I've, I've known people who, who are horror fans by any stretch of imagination who've watched the film and really enjoyed it. But that's not to say that, that it's, you know, the film itself is, is no cop-out. It's got some genuinely scary moments. It's got some great, you know, gore and, and, and some kind of thrilling action in it, too. So I don't think it, you know, I don't, I don't think it, it condescends. It, it honestly uh, it embraces a lot of different genres. And, and I think especially for a, uh, for a film that was done on a modest budget, I think executes them uh, very well. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Well, um, uh, House of Bad will be released on December 3 from Osiris Entertainment. That's pretty exciting. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's going to be uh, on DVD and video on demand, yeah. uh, and we'll be announcing what platforms it'll be on in the coming weeks. Uh, as soon as all that stuff gets solidified right now, uh, it is up on Amazon, and people can just go to Amazon, type in House of Bad, and you can pre-order it now for a discounted rate. Yep, definitely check First it out. Rock. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Jim. It's been an absolute pleasure. David, thanks very much. I appreciate it. No worries at all. You have a good night. All right, man. Thanks. See you, buddy. We'll talk soon. All, all right, right, bye. So that was Jim. Once again, awesome. Thank you very much to the people from House of Bad. Thank you, Jim. And uh, check it out when it comes out in December. Coming up next, coming soon. Coming soon in Australian cinemas. I do need to point that out. Australian cinema releases. Uh, November 14, we get the remake that had to happen. Carrie. Why did it have to happen? Because it's just what this is what Hollywood does. Yeah. <laughs> and, Hollywood will it eat could, itself. It could be good. I've seen some remake recently that were actually good. So well, I, I like Colin Moritz. I think she's a good yeah. actress. So I think she's awesome. Could and, be interesting. Uh, I'll see anything that she's in. I think she's a good actress, but I just have no desire to see this film. Yeah, that's fair enough. It's, it, is, of, it is fifty fifty. So. Yeah. Big, big fan of the original though. Yeah, what an yeah. awesome movie. It's worth a watch. I'll, I'll check it out. Uh, the film that I don't want to see and it was reviewed by Bo uh, in our last episode, The Fifth Estate. Uh, pass. It's all about. It's a a dramatized version of, of the WikiLeaks sort of deal. I was actually intrigued by those reviews. Yeah, uh, Bo didn't like it, and he didn't like it for a very good reason. I thought, which was cool. That's Benedict Cumberbatch playing Jordan. Yeah, Assange. Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch. He thought Benedict did a good job, um, but his problem was it is that that's the sort of uh, that sort of thing because it's ha- currently happening and still mm. hasn't been resolved. Yeah. This would be better served by a documentary. Yeah, yeah. and because he was seeing a film, he expected to see a resolution. resolution. Yeah. You know, so character arc and resolution, and there was none. Yeah. And so you're like, oh, I said I didn't, it didn't really work. Um, in saying that, if you want to see a documentary of this subject, uh, I highly recommend We Steal Secrets, mm-hmm. um, which is an awesome documentary. Very well done. And following up, we, on that same day, we also get Bad Grandpa, which has gotten some rave reviews overseas. So um, It's made a lot of money, too. I'm intrigued. It's uh, it's from the, from the Jackass mm-hmm. boys and... Uh, 
I don't know, the trailer to me looks abhorrent. I don't understand it. I it's have, not my thing. I don't get it. No. Yeah, I have no interest whatsoever in yeah, this. I, I, mean, I don't like Jackass or any of the Jackass stuff, so... Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, some of the humour, I suppose, I could probably sit through, but the bit where the kid goes to the the pageant dressed up as a girl and then starts Terry Pie, and I'm like, this is not for me. This is not my thing. Mm. But hey, it's made a crap load of money, so that's what all Hollywood cares about. <laughs> I'm interested to see how it goes in Australia. You're a Hollywood cynic. Burn, Hollywood, burn! No, he's not a Hollywood cynic, he's a Hollywood realist. (laughs) It's it's all about the dollars. (laughs) Dollars and cents. I don't know, I've been listening to some rap recently, obviously. (laughs) Burn, Hollywood, burn. Get your dollars and common sense. That's it. Uh, So to finish up, don't forget you can contact us. Oh, don't forget we also have our website, which is... Most frequently by Great Britainers and Americans. That's and pretty cool. Singaporean. Thank you, website. And it's www.nerdculturepodcast.com. And via email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. And Facebook. www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. And Twitter. At nerdculturecast. And you can contact us on Skype at nerdculturepodcast. Uh, if you leave a message... Following up from the the ass Luke <laughs> for a pretty couple of episodes ago, that was pretty cool. Uh, you can just leave a leave a message and uh, we'll play it on the show. And uh, more importantly, don't forget you can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And being we're oh, and we're an Amazon affiliate, so there's an Amazon widget on the website. If you want to buy anything through Amazon, go through the widget. We get a slice of the action. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything extra, and we really appreciate it. Help support the show, the mm. comedy that we bring you. Money. That's it. We want money. <laughs> Every little bit helps. We're not in this for the love. That's it. That's it from me and the crew, Richo. I still see the knee. Look. Yeah, the more you say that, the more my review is going down even lower. <laughs> it's a fair point. Crystal. So I still can't remember what his excuse was, but two years is an awfully long time. It is. <laughs> he deserved the slap. Yeah. That was another cool moment where she slapped Thor, uh, slapped Loki. Mm. I like this. She punches Loki, thank you very much. No, she slaps, she slaps him. Then she punches. No. no, she punches him and says, "That's for New York." She slaps him slaps and says, him "That's for New York." Face. Quite yeah, hard. Right, then. <laughs> anyway, do you watch Bye. <laughs> do you watch Bye. Obviously not. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>